Chapter 7 of The Begum's Fortune by Jules Verne. Translated by W. H. G. Kingston. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 7 The Central Block. A report from Dr. Echternach, surgeon in chief to the section of the Albrecht Pit, stated that the death of Karl Bauer, number 41902, thirteen years of age, trapper in gallery 228, was caused by asphyxia, resulting from the absorption by the respiratory organs of a large proportion of carbonic acid. Another no less luminous report from the engineer Monsmule explained the necessity of including in the ventilating scheme zone B in the plan 14, as a large amount of deleterious gas filtered slowly from its galleries. Lastly, a note from the same functionary brought before the notice of the authorities the devotedness of the overseer Rayer and of the first-class workman, Johann Schwartz. Ten hours later, on reaching the porter's lodge, Max, as he took his presence counter, found this printed order on the nail addressed to him. Schwartz will present himself at the Director General's office at ten o'clock today, Central Block, Gate and Road A. At last, thought Max, this is the first step. The rest will come. While chatting with his comrades on his Sunday walks round Stahlstadt, he had acquired sufficient knowledge of the general organization of the city to know that authority to enter the central block was not to be had every day. All sorts of stories were current about this place. It was said that some indiscreet people, who had tried to get into the guarded enclosure by stratagem, had never been seen again. That, before their admission, all workmen employed there had to go through a series of Masonic ceremonies, were obliged to take the most solemn oaths not to reveal anything that went on there, and were mercilessly sentenced to death by a secret tribunal if they violated their oath. A subterranean railway put this sanctuary in communication with the outworks. Night trains brought unknown visitors. Supreme councils were held there, and sometimes mysterious personages came to participate in the deliberations. Without putting unnecessary faith in these accounts, Max knew that they were really the popular expression of a well-known fact, the extreme difficulty which attended admission into the central division. Of all the workmen whom he knew, and he had friends in the iron mines as well as in the coal pits, among the refiners, as well as the men employed in the blast furnaces, among the carpenters, as well as the smiths. Not one had ever entered the gate. It was therefore with a feeling of intense curiosity, as well as secret pleasure, that he presented himself there at the hour named. It was soon plain that the precautions were of the strictest. Evidently Max was expected— Two men, dressed in a grey uniform, swords at their sides, and revolvers in their belts, were waiting in the porter's lodge. This lodge, like that of a cloistered convent, had two gates, an outer and an inner one, 
which was never open at the same time. The pass examined and signed. Max saw, though without manifesting any surprise, a white handkerchief brought out, with which the two attendants in uniform carefully bandaged his eyes. Then taking him by the arms, they marched him off without saying a word. After walking two or three thousand steps, they mounted a staircase. A door was opened and shut, and Max was allowed to take off his bandage. He found himself in a large plain room, furnished with some chairs, a blackboard, and a long desk, supplied with every implement necessary for linear drawing. It was lighted by high windows, filled with ground glass. Almost immediately, two personages, who looked as if they belonged to a university, entered the room. "'You are brought before our notice as having somewhat distinguished yourself,' said one of them. "'We are about to examine you to find out if there is a reason to admit you into the model division.' Are you prepared to answer our questions? Max modestly declared himself ready to be put to the proof. The two examiners then successively put questions to him in chemistry, geometry, and algebra. The young workman satisfied them in every case by the clearness and precision of his answers. The figures which he traced in chalk on the board were neat, decided, and elegant. His equations in the most perfect way, in equal lines like the ranks of a crack regiment. One of these demonstrations was so remarkable and so new to the judges that they expressed their astonishment and asked where he had been taught. At Schaffhausen, my native town, in the elementary school. You appear a good draftsman. It was my strong point. The education given in Switzerland is decidedly very uncommon, remarked one examiner to the other. We will give you two hours to execute this, he resumed, handing to the candidate a drawing of a very complicated-looking steam engine. If you acquit yourself well, you shall be admitted with the mention, perfectly satisfactory and very superior. Left alone, Max set eagerly to work. When his judges re-entered at the expiration of the given time, they were so delighted with his diagram that they added to the promised mention, We have not another draftsman of equal talent. Our young workman was then again seized by the grey attendants, and with the same ceremonial, that is to say the bandaged eyes, was led to the office of the director general. You are offered admission to one of the studios in the model division said this personage. Are you ready to submit to the rules and regulations? I do not know what they are, said Max, but I presume they are acceptable. They are these. First, you are compelled, as long as your engagement lasts, to reside in the same division. You cannot go out but by special and exceptional order. Second, you are subjected to military discipline, and you owe absolute obedience, under military penalties, to your superiors. To weigh against this, you are also like the non-commissioned officers of an active army, for you may, by irregular advance, be raised to the highest grades. Third, you bind yourself by an oath never to reveal to anyone 
what you see in the division to which you have access. Fourth, your correspondence is opened by your chiefs, all you send as well as all you receive, and it must be limited to your family. In short, I am in prison, thought Max. Then he replied quietly, These rules seem perfectly just, and I am ready to submit to them. Good. Raise your hand. Take the oath. You are nominated draftsman to the fourth studio. A lodging will be assigned to you, and for your meals you will find a first-rate canteen here. You have not your property with you? No, sir. As I was ignorant of what I was wanted for, I left everything in my room. They will be brought to you, for you must not again go out of the division. I did well, thought Max, to write my notes in cipher. They would only have had to look at them. Before the close of the day, Max was established in a pretty little room in the fourth story of a building overlooking a wide courtyard and had some ideas about his new life. He did not fancy that it would be as dismal as at first sight it appeared. His comrades, with whom he made acquaintance at the restaurant, were in general quiet and gentle, like all industrious people. To enliven themselves a little, for there was rather a want of gaiety in their mechanical life, they formed a band amongst themselves, and performed selections of very tolerable music every evening. A library, a reading-room, were valuable resources for the mind, from a scientific point of view, during the rare hours of leisure. Special courses held by professors were obligatory to all the men employed, who had besides to undergo frequent examinations and competitions. But fresh air and liberty were lacking in these narrow confines. It was a regular college, only with extra strictness exercised on grown men. The surrounding atmosphere could not but weigh on their spirits, subjected as they were to an iron discipline. The winter passed away in these employments, to which Max gave himself up, heart and soul. His application, the perfection of his drawings, his extraordinary progress in every subject he was taught, noticed by all his tutors and examiners, had made for him, even in this short time, and amongst all these diligent men, a corresponding celebrity. By general consent, he was the most clever draftsman, the most ingenious, the most fruitful in resources. Was there a difficulty? They applied to him. Even the chiefs themselves resorted to his experience with the respect which merit extorts even from the most marked jealousy. But if, on reaching the heart of the model division, the young man calculated that he would be any nearer, getting at the innermost secrets, he was very much out of his reckoning. His life at present was enclosed within an iron railing, three hundred yards in diameter, surrounding the segment of the central block to which he was attached. Intellectually, his activity could and should extend to the highest branches of metallurgic industry. In practice, it was limited to drawing steam engines. He constructed them of all dimensions and of all powers, for every kind of industry and use 
for warships and for printing presses, but he never left this specialty. The division of labor pushed to its utmost limit held him as in a vice. After four months passed in Section A, Max knew no more of the entire plan of the works in the steel city than he did on entering. At the most, he had merely collected a little general information about the organization of the machinery of which he formed, notwithstanding his merits, but a very small portion. He knew that the center of the spider's web, figurative of Stahlstadt, was the bull tower, a kind of cyclopean structure overlooking all the neighboring buildings. He had learnt, too, through the legendary stories of the canteen, that the dwelling of Herr Schultz himself was at the base of this tower, and that the renowned secret room occupied the center. It was added that this vaulted hall, protected against any danger of fire, and plated inside, as a monitor is plated outside, was closed by a system of steel doors with spring-gun locks, worthy of the most suspicious bank. The general opinion was that Professor Schultz was working at the completion of a terrible engine of war, of unprecedented power, and destined to assure universal dominion to Germany. Max had revolved in his brain many most audacious plans of escalade and disguise, but had been compelled to acknowledge to himself that nothing of the sort was practicable. Those lines of somber and massive walls, flooded with light during the night, and guarded by trusty sentinels, would always oppose an insuperable obstacle to every attempt— but even if he did overcome it, to some extent, what would he see? Details, always details, never the whole. What matter? He had sworn not to yield, and he would not yield. If it took ten years, he would wait that time. But the hour was coming when that secret would be his own. It must. The happy city of Frankville was prospering, its beneficent institutions favoring each and all, and giving a new horizon of hope to a disheartened people. Max had no doubt that in the face of such a triumph to the Latin race, Schultz would be no more than ever determined to make good his threats. Stahlstadt and its factories were a proof of that. Thus, many weeks passed away. One day in March, Max had just for the hundredth time repeated his secret vow when one of the gray attendants informed him that the director general wished to speak to him. I have received from Herr Schultz, said this high functionary, an order to send him our best draftsman. You are the man. Make your arrangements to pass into the inner circle. You are promoted to the rank of lieutenant. Thus, at the very moment when he was almost despairing of success, his heroic toil at last procured him the much-desired entrance. Max was so filled with delight that his joy exhibited itself on his countenance. "'I am happy to have such good news to announce to you,' continued the director, 
and I cannot refrain from urging you to continue in the path you have begun to tread so gallantly. A brilliant future is before you. Go, sir. So Max, after his long probation, caught the first glimpse of the end which he had sworn to reach. To stuff all his clothes into his portmanteau, follow the gray men, pass through the last enclosure, of which the entrance in the A road might have been still forbidden to him, was the work of a few minutes. He now stood at the foot of the inaccessible bowl tower, until this moment he had but seen its lofty head reared among the clouds. The scene which lay before him was indeed an unexpected one. Imagine a man suddenly transported from a noisy, commonplace European workshop into the midst of a virgin forest in the torrid zone. Such was the surprise which awaited Max in the center of Stahlstadt. As a virgin forest gains in beauty from the descriptions of great writers, so was Professor Schultz's park more beautiful than the most lovely of pleasure gardens. Slender palms, tufted bananas, curious cacti formed the shrubberies, Creepers wound gracefully round eucalyptus trees, hung in great festoons, or fell in rich clusters. The most tender plants bloomed in abundance. Pineapples and guavas ripened beside oranges. Hummingbirds and birds of paradise displayed their brilliant plumage in the open air, for the temperature was as tropical as the vegetation. Max instinctively looked around and above, for glass and hot-air pipes to account for this miracle. Seeing nothing but the blue sky, he stopped, bewildered. Then it flashed upon him that not far from the spot was a coal-mine in permanent combustion, and he guessed that Herr Schultz had ingeniously utilized this valuable subterranean heat by means of metallic pipes to maintain a constant hothouse atmosphere. But this explanation did not prevent the young Alsatian's eyes from being dazzled and charmed with the green lawns, while his nostrils inhaled with delight the delicious scents which filled the air. To a man who had passed six months without seeing even a blade of grass, it was truly refreshing. A graveled path led him, by a gentle slope, to the foot of a handsome flight of marble steps, commanded by a majestic colonnade. Behind rose the huge and massive square building, which was, as it were, the pedestal of the bowl tower. Beneath the peristyle Max could see seven or eight servants in red livery, and a gorgeous porter in cocked hat, and bearing a halberd. And he noticed between the columns rich bronze candelabra, as he ascended the steps, a slight rumble betrayed that the underground railroad lay beneath his feet. Max gave his name and was immediately admitted into a hall, a regular museum of sculpture. Not having time to examine anything, he was conducted first through a saloon, adorned with black and gold, then through one with red and gold ornaments, and he was finally left alone for five minutes in a yellow and gold saloon. At the end of that time, a footman returned and showed him into a splendid green and gold study. 
Herr Schultz in person, smoking a long clay pipe with a tankard of beer at his side, had the effect, in the midst of all this luxury, of a spot of mud on a patent leather boot. Without rising, without even turning his head, the King of Steel merely said, in a cold tone, "'Are you the draftsman?' "'Yes, sir. I've seen your diagrams. They're very good. But do you only understand steam engines?' I have never been examined in anything else. Do you know anything of the science of projectiles? I have studied it in my spare time, and for my own pleasure. This reply interested Herr Schultz. He deigned to turn and look at his employee. Well, will you undertake to design a cannon with me? We shall see what you can make of it. Ah, you will be scarcely able to take the place of that idiot of a Zona who got killed this morning while handling some dynamite. The fool might have blown us all up. It must be acknowledged that this revolting want of feeling was only what might have been expected from the mouth of Herr Schultz. End of section seven.